Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. If you don't typically uh, watch us on Facebook Live, this might be a terrific day to do it because um, we do have a camera in the media center, which is where we are right now, and uh, you can get a couple of shots here and there of what it looks like in this facility. Just go to the GPB news page on Facebook and you'll find us there. All right, let me get right to the panel on this very big day in the state of Georgia. Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Jim, we're glad you could be here for this. Yeah, this was a uh, this is a this is a big operation, and you can kind of see why they wanted it here. Instant security. This is old, the old Fort Mac territory, and it's near the airport. And it, uh, it sends a, a real interesting uh, political, cultural message. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Dr. Andre Gillespie, political science professor from Emory University, joins us. Hi, Andre. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me here. This is pretty cool. I know you had to, it was a, you had to fight your way in here. MSNBC. Security is tight. Yeah. I mean, MSNBC, I have to say, has done a terrific job. And Robert Jimison has been in charge of all these logistics. And they've... MSNBC has been great to give us all the credentials we need, but there's always some screw up. And but you're you're a fierce person. You got in. <laughs> I, I did not fight. So just to let all of the listeners know, I know you did. <laughs> Lori Geary is here as well. Of course, Lori was the political reporter at WSB TV, and. Uh, wisely went off, started her own company, which you call... It's Lori Geary Media, and I'm a partner with Lexicon Strategies. Absolutely. And one of your big projects right now is working toward a 2020 census count, making sure that every Georgia gets out there, every Georgian gets out there and is counted, right? That's right. It's going to be a big year next year. And Theron Johnson and I are the co-executive directors of the marketing committee for the the Georgia Complete Count Committee. You are also the host now of uh, Georgia Gang, which is on Fox 5 every Sunday morning at 8. 30 and uh, i know you're having fun doing that. it is fun all right let's get talking let's talk now about um first the fact that we're here at tyler perry (laughs) studios by the way uh, i went around and looked it looked to me like there are about almost 500 seats for media people so we're going to have and right now there's not a whole lot of them here yet because the debate is still not coming up till nine o'clock but this is going to be um andra a very well-watched, important debate, which is why so many media people are descending on Atlanta. Yes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's part of, you know, the debates that we've been having um, since since June, and this is really going to give Democrats an opportunity to continue to vet the candidates. The field is a little bit smaller this time than it was last month, um, and so, you know, this is a chance to uh, vet a new frontrunner um, in terms of Pete Buttigieg, but this is also one of those last opportunities for those who are on the outer tiers of the stage to make the case that they deserve to continue to get the fundraising dollars and the polling support to go on. set up for some of the themes we're going to look at as we go through our show today. By the way, I don't think I said we're going to be on for two straight hours from two to four and uh, have some other panelists joining us a little later. But Jim Galloway, um, why Tyler Perry Studios? 
the background on this is there were some of us in the journalistic community who had been tracking for a while the possibility, what appeared to be a certainty, that the Democrats and MSNBC were going to put this up at City Springs, Mayor Rusty Paul's new beautiful auditorium up in Sandy Springs. Yeah, well, it wasn't just journalists. I mean, there, were, there, were, there was a political push behind it, too. And, and, and we understand that Stacey Abrams and Keisha Bottoms, Mayor Bottoms, both really pushed hard to make sure that it would be a TPS. Right. Well, what you have to you have to go back to the establishment of the, the Tyler Perry Studios. This is the old Fort Mac uh, property. Uh, uh, it was kind of where uh, Vietnam was operated out of here, uh, if you will, because this this used to be a very important place. Uh, and when when they they closed the base, they. Uh, they, uh, they, the city acquired it or acquired control of it. Uh, Tyler Perry bought 330 acres of it. I think there's still another 150 acres that's uh, about that's that's in dispute. And he has essentially created this a, a uh, I think what he's got 13 sound studios, 12, here? 12, 12, 12 sound studios here. Uh, the biggest one is the Oprah Winfrey one, which is where the debate's going to happen. That's it, Laurie. He number one. He becomes. The only African American head of a major of a of a studio of a production studio in the United States, he does have twelve sound stages, each of them named after an African American artist. I don't know about you; I hadn't been down here till I came for the debate. It's an impressive facility. It's kind of breathtaking. It is. Andre and I walked in together, and I said, gosh, I haven't been here since it really was Fort Mac. <laughs> um, and it is impressive. And you have to remember, you have media coming in. You can probably see some of them coming in behind us, yeah. coming in from all around the world. And to come into these massive studios, it's a sprawling enterprise. It's a very controlled environment. Think about getting up to Sandy Springs at this time of day, really at any time of day. It would have been problematic in terms of traffic. Um, but also, I mean, we're in Stacey Abrams country. You know, I was reading some of the statistics, 95 to 99% of folks here in Southwest Atlanta voted for Stacey Abrams. And I think you have to really give it to Stacey Abrams and also to Mayor Bottoms. We're not always that complimentary of Mayor Bottoms and the Georgia gang, but, you know, to have it here, right, to have it in the city of Atlanta and Southwest Atlanta, and also to the Democratic Party chair, to Nakima um, Williams, because they pushed. And although it was really important also to have it in the 6th Congressional District to really support Lucy McBath, I don't think you can go wrong. I mean, this is your Democratic base of support here in Atlanta. Yeah, Andra, once they announced Tyler Perry mm -hmm. Studios, I think many of us said, what a no-brainer. Of course, this is an entrepreneurial operation here, again, run by an extraordinarily <laughs> successful African-American businessman. As Laurie says, we're in the heart of Democratic territory down here. It makes a big statement about the Democratic Party and how they feel about making sure African-Americans know they matter. And, and so I think it's important to keep in mind that we're not in the general election contest yet. Yeah. And so the case for trying to put it in the North Metro suburbs would make more sense if we were talking about a, a presidential debate, if we were talking about a general election debate, as opposed to a primary election debate. Um, a lot of those voters who people are trying to flip in the 6th District and in the 7th District uh, may not be the type of people who would come out to be a Democratic primary voter. So, so they can because this is open um, and there isn't party registration in the state. But this is a, a base 
base vote. And so African-Americans are the base vote of the Democratic Party, and they make up the lion's share of the electorate in a Democratic primary here in Georgia. And so it makes sense to attend to them in the primary. And then, you know, if Georgia wants to make a bid for, you know, a general, general election, election debate, right. you know, that's, um, you know, they can do that as well. Right. And, and, and keep in mind, this is something that, is, that started under Kasim Reed. Uh, carried through with Bottoms. Uh, Bottoms is pushing for, for, for Perry to get that extra land and grow this even bigger. They want this to be the, the kind of the African American alternative to, to Hollywood. Now, let me, let me, there's, a, there's something that we, we haven't considered that's very, very interesting. By having this debate here, uh, I think uh, the, the Georgia Democratic Party kind of puts an end to talk of a movie, uh, film, and in, uh, TV boycott of of, of Georgia uh, uh, in response to House Bill 481, the, the abortion bill. By putting the spotlight on this, by, by spotlighting the quarter of a billion dollars that Ter- Perry has poured into this fat, into this thing, it kind of it kind of uh, insulates him, uh, and, and it insulates him, and it insulates the movie industry i think let's um we talked about Stacey abrams uh she has a um op-ed piece in the washington post and let me just read a couple of lines from from her op-ed uh, relating to the debate she says no democratic presidential candidate has won georgia since 1992 but over the past decade republican margins of victory in statewide elections have declined steadily from eight points in the 2012 presidential election to five points in the 2016 presidential race. And then she points to her own race. She lost by 1.4 points in the 2018 race. But let's go back, and then we'll we'll talk about the changing demographic. Laurie, that 1990, of course, again, general election numbers, but to go back to the primary, the last time there was a presidential, Democratic presidential debate here was at the Carter Center. It was Bill Clinton, Bob Carey, uh, Paul Paul Sangas from uh, Massachusetts. And it was a hugely important debate and primary for Bill Clinton in Georgia that year. It was. And if you think about 92 and who helped Bill Clinton win um, the party nomination, it was Al Miller, right, Um, by moving up the primary. So Georgia has a long history with the Democratic presidential candidates. So, I mean, in a way, it's really nice to see them come back um, to realize that is Georgia really the battleground state that we've been talking about? You know, every election, I swear, Bill, every time we covered, oh, well, Georgia's purple, Georgia's turning purple, and it never really did. But I think now we see some momentum going in the Democratic way. Andre Clinton came in second in New Hampshire that year. He had gone through the scandal, the Jennifer Flowers scandal. People were counting him out completely. I remember coming back from New Hampshire and some of the print reporters who I used to spend time with who hadn't been up there said, Bill Clinton's dead. He'll never get anywhere. Um, and But we knew that that Georgia primary was approaching. Here's another quick story, and then I'll turn it over to you. We, there was an off year, one of those uh, Democratic National Committee meetings in an off election year out in Los Angeles that uh, Tom Baxter, at that point with the AJC, and I went to to cover. And Zell Miller pulled us aside and said, hey, what kind of coverage do you think I'd get if I went back to Georgia and Asked the legislature to vote on moving the primary earlier to support President Clinton. And we said, well, you'll have to talk to your advisors about that. But the point is, Lori's right. 
he was a huge help to Clinton. It restored his campaign. And and I think probably you know the connection between the two of them as Southerners, um, you know, makes uh, make makes the difference here. The dynamics are a little bit different, and so I, I you know I think bringing it here to an African American owned studio in an African American um, section of the city um, is something that's really important, and it's infirm, affirming the importance of African American voters um, to this type of situation. But you know. In terms of thinking about what that vote is going to look like, if we look at where Georgia's primary date is going to be, you know, it's, we're not going to be on Super Tuesday this year. We're going to be a little bit later. But given how diffuse the field is, uh, Georgia could actually be really pivotal in helping to identify or helping some front runner eventually solidify their place. Who that person is at this point, we don't know. We have one other state at the, at, um, with us. I can't confirm that. Yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head. We can look it up. But um, I, I mean, we are going to have an opportunity after Super Tuesday to make some impact, perhaps in late, what, March 24th is the Tuesday. Um, all right. So, Jim, let's um, I also this morning I got a chance to interview David Perdue about tonight. And um, he also wrote a um, an op-ed piece for the Washington Examiner that appeared this morning, and we talked a little about that. One of the things, here's what he said. Wednesday night, the country's most liberal Democrats will descend on my home state of Georgia and flood the airwaves with their radical socialist ideas. Uh, Don't be fooled by catchy names like the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, the Freedom Dividend. These are disguises for socialist policies that would fundamentally change the country as we know it. So that's Purdue. Um... The, at the same time, all of a sudden, Jim, Pete Buttigieg, one of the most moderate candidates in the race, has surged. He's first in Iowa, according to the most recent Des Moines uh, uh, Register polling. The new poll out of St. Anselm's in New Hampshire has him in front out th- up there by a wide margin. And so I asked Purdue, Jim, what, is Joe Biden a socialist? And he said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and this is going to be this is this is this is this is their story, and they're sticking to it uh, for the for, for the next for the next twelve months. Uh, it, uh, it they're in a, they're in a little bit of a jam because they 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 don't have uh, they don't have. Uh, uh, Trump is is proving to be a liability. I think and we can when we get to Doug Collins, yeah. we can we can talk a, a little bit about that. And you know, uh, Eric Erickson pointed something out this week. Republicans have been are kind of bereft of policy right now because they can't put anything forward without being afraid of uh, of uh, of contradicting Trump. Right. I'm, I'm going to. I don't want to interrupt your your line of thought, but train of thought, but. Uh, Tom Faust is telling us that we need to take a quick break. Apparently, we're having a few audio issues that they're going to try to clear up so that all of you at home can hear this wisdom from our three panelists even more clearly. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. That car of yours you no longer need, give it a second life by donating it. It could be worth hundreds of dollars to support this station. Pickup is free. Here's how to get started. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org slash cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Do your eyes glaze over when people start talking about the economy? Are you looking for ways to impress people at parties with your knowledge of what's going on in the world? Listen to Marketplace weekdays at 6 p.m. on GPB. 
It's business news for the rest of us. Hi, everybody. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Here at Marketplace, we tell you how business decisions and public policies are going to affect your bottom line. So please join me weekdays at 6 p.m. right here on GPB. Stand with the facts. Georgia's in the political spotlight this week as a dozen Democratic presidential candidates campaign in Atlanta. Ten of them take the debate stage tonight to answer questions from an all-female panel of journalists. I'm Ricky Bevington. Join me for a special broadcast of All Things Considered live from Tyler Perry Studios ahead of the Democratic presidential debate tonight. Listen to All Things Considered later today from 4 to 7 here on GPB. We're back at Tyler Perry Studios with a special edition, a live two-hour edition of Political Rewind as we prepare for the MSNBC Washington Post debate that takes place tonight starting at 9 o'clock. Jim Galloway, Dr. Andre Gillespie, Lori Geary are here for the first hour of our broadcast. Lori, let's pick up and then get everybody else involved in this on what Jim Galloway said as we were going to our break. Um, So... You know, David Perdue talks about Medicare for all, talks about the uh, New Deal, the Green New Deal, and all these other things as being uh, socialist policies. He, There have been more and more concerns about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, their Medicaid, Medicare for all proposals. We had President Obama, who was in town this morning but didn't talk politics, last Friday with Stacey Abrams, essentially warning Democrats don't try to move too fast. You're going to lose voters out there. It's interesting that simultaneous to that, at least in Iowa and New Hampshire, it appears voters are beginning to be a little concerned about the most liberal positions out there. And I think if you read over President Obama's um, comments, I don't think they were geared to the candidates as much as they were geared toward the voters. You know, let because we know where the candidates stand. And, you know, even if the candidates were to come out and maybe back off, we saw Elizabeth Warren perhaps backing off a little bit of the Medicare for all. She was going to do it in more incremental stages. Um, he knows where the candidates stand, but we're talking to the, the Democratic voters now. And um, we know that the reason why Republicans talk about socialism and David Perdue talks about socialism is because that that hits home with those moderates. Yeah. They they don't like the talk of socialism. With the moderates, with the swing I voters. I think with the swing voters and some yeah. of the moderate voters as well. Andra, so, give us your take on that, and then we'll get Jim in here too. And Well, I think there are a number of different things at play here. Like One, I'm looking at who the front runners are, and I think a lot about the Republican primary in 2012, um, where lots of people kind of took their turn kind of being the front runner. Yeah. And so I still expect that there's going to be a lot of movement. So yeah. this week it's Pete Buttigieg. We'll see how long that lasts, and we'll see if he can sustain that over time. Um, but in terms of thinking about how voters react, in a primary, ideologically, you're, if we were just going to put them sort of on a spectrum, on a line, for instance, because you don't have Republicans voting for Democratic candidates, um, it's truncated. And so the electorate is going to look a little bit more extreme then it's going to look in a general election. And so this is what Mitt Romney was talking about when he talked about that Etch-a-Sketch moment in 2012, yeah. right? He went right to sort of appeal to that more conservative base, and then he was trying to figure out how to credibly work his way back to the center. And so I think that's what President Obama is trying to warn Democrats of. You could elect a candidate that's going to play very well for the half of the electorate, you know, that is liberal, where, you know, where people who are far left are going to have more weight, but they're not going to have the same type of weight in a general election. And so is it going Going to appeal to that median voter who's going to be in the general election. So, Jim, it becomes a question of electability.
ability as much as about policies. I wonder how that's going to play tonight. Elizabeth Warren did not did not help her cause, I think it's fair to say, a great deal when she released this plan that people had been asking about for how to pay for her Medicare for All program. It scared the heck out of people, and her numbers have reflected that to some extent. Right, right. I her, wonder how she'll her, do tonight. Her, yeah, her numbers, her numbers didn't add up. up. And so I, I think you're going to see the Amy Klobuchar's. I think you're going to see the Pete Buttigieg's and Joe Biden's get up there and 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 make a case for the middle. This is kind of, to, 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 to Andre's point, this is kind of a... Uh, the, 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 Democrats are having to, to deal with the spoils of success because they're picking up the independent voters that are fleeing from Trump. But in order to keep keep them, uh, you know, they want they want change, but not too much change. And I think that's what this the, the socialist code word is for is for too much change. I think if you look at what played out here in Georgia, if you look at the Stacey Abrams Governor Brian Kemp race, and you know Stacey Abrams fared so well and got the most Democratic votes ever here in Georgia. She stuck to those issues that are really near and dear to voters' hearts. I mean, you were talking about health care, um, not really health care for, for all, but an expansion of Medicaid, right? Um, you were talking about gun restrictions, but not taking away all guns. Um, and same with Lucy McBath. It was guns and it was health care up there, but it wasn't a, a, you know, Medicare for all, and it wasn't, I'm going to, you know, ban all guns. They were... And it was a choice 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 was up there uh, yes 481 yes you know and i think the other thing to keep in mind is that when senator purdue and other republicans use the term socialist that is something that they message tested the same way that sure. that democrats have message tested quid pro quo versus bribery um and so they know that it's going to strike fear in the hearts of people and so they're tapping into this notion of what the democrats are proposing prospectively is something one that you don't know if it's going to work out and that you have a lot to be afraid of because we have a history of being anti-communist in in in, in this country um and so what he's trying to do is to say better to have the devil that you know versus the devil that you don't know. And I'm going to do a lot to demonize that. And it's no different than, you know, trying to attach uh, John Ossoff to Nancy Pelosi, for instance, in 2017, or, you know, in the 80s, trying to attach all Democrats to Ted Kennedy, right? So you try to figure out what the shibboleth is. And so now they've decided that that is AOC, Bernie Sanders, and these really kind of, ext- uh, you know, far left points of view and policy preferences. You've also got, uh, you, uh, you've, uh, got uh, Teresa Tomlinson. Uh, this week uh, decided that she was going to to uh, hone in on on uh, Purdue's socialist me- message. You know, her point being that uh, the city of Columbus didn't elect a, a her mayor uh, didn't elect a socialist mayor twice. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. She uh, she kind of had fun with that too. I mean, she I, it was interesting to see how she positioned that. Um, <clears throat> all right, so. One of the other things I talked with uh, Purdue about, he he brought this up, and then I, I tried to drill down on it a little bit, Laurie. He talked about uh, the Affordable Care Act as part of that socialist agenda. But when I said to him, well, Senator, you've got a governor in Georgia who's about to expand Medicaid, at least some expansion of it based on ACA. You've got a governor in Georgia who wants to take $62 billion and bring it back under the state control instead of having the federal government control it, isn't that playing into the agenda? What do you think about these waivers? And he was interesting. He said, if I were Kemp, I'd be very cautious about how I get involved in that. Now, he didn't offer an alternative, but I thought it was interesting that he showed a little hesitation about the waivers. Um, That is interesting, and you wonder what the Trump administration will rule on these waivers. But also... um what are the 
what are the alternatives that Republicans are coming up with? And are there any alternatives in the health care realm? Um, we know that four years ago they... He said, you know, no to Obamacare, but nothing has really changed in that matter. Um, they're not expanding it, but yet, you know, we have Governor Brian Kemp trying to deal with it as best as he can, and yet still tow the party line of not a full expansion of Medicaid. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right, Bill. I mean, I mean, Kemp could Kemp could uh, be caught in the crossfire yeah. and get hit by friendly fire here yeah. Yeah. With, with, uh, with, with socialistic medicine. So, go ahead, Andre. On the other hand, though, people like Obamacare. People like the provisions of it. Like, if you attach President Obama's name to it, that's tapping into racial resentment that'll get people to oppose it. But if you look at the planks that people like, you know, keeping your kids on insurance, sure. You know, making sure that people have pre-existing conditions get healthcare. Those are very, very popular. And so there are times, and I would even go back to to Purdue's uh, candidacy for the Senate, where I think he was tone deaf on those issues. Right? He's a rich guy who can afford all the healthcare that he wants. He claims that that when ACA passed, it hurt him and his business because he lost the flexibility in terms of the insurance plans that he offered. To no, his I mean, business, I, I, just so you know what he says. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember going to the debate that was I was at Kennesaw State, um, uh, and and where he was talking about you know how his wife was required to carry certain types of yes. OBGYN coverage and she's past childbearing age. And it's like, but she still has to go to the gynecologist. And so there was a way that he talked about it that was very funny and very personable. But on the other hand, as a woman, when I listened to that, it was like, pap smears don't stop at menopause. Like, breast exams don't stop at menopause. In fact, you have to really get those things at that age. So, you know, I think that there's a way that, you know, he, you know, there's a way that it plays well to his constituency, but it also doesn't necessarily jive with reality. All right. Uh, by the way, if you want to hear that full per interview that I did with Senator Purdue, uh, Robert Jimison has posted it on the GPB News website. You can go there, and I, it's about 12, 13 minutes long, I think. All right. Um, let's talk about the dynamic that we expect to see tonight. Lori said it a little while ago. We're all aware of it. All of a sudden, Pete Buttigieg is having his moment uh, in Iowa. He's the, he's, we've known for a while now that he is by far the best organized candidate on the ground in Iowa. He's got a tremendous organization there, and it's paying dividends now. He's also got so much money. I think he's run, he's run exponentially more TV ads in Iowa than any other candidate comes close to having run. So is he suddenly the target tonight instead of Joe Biden, instead of Elizabeth Warren? How is this going to play out? I think he's definitely the target tonight, um, one of the top targets tonight, because, you know, if you win Iowa and you win New Hampshire and people will say, well, that's not, you know, the majority of American voters, it gives you the momentum, right? It gives you the momentum going into the other states. It gives you more fundraising ability. So it's a lot to be said if you win one of the first two states. However, I think it's interesting when we talk about courting the African-American vote and the the top Democrats polling right now are white, yeah. right? And so then the challenges become how does he court the African-American vote and how does he poll in South Carolina um, and some of the others, the other states? And so it'll be interesting to see how these candidates deal with voting rights issues and some of the issues that we've seen Stacey Abrams and some of the other Democrats in Georgia tackle. And I wonder if they bring them up and how far they go with them. So, uh, under pickup before, we'll talk about a, a couple of those things, but uh, is Buttigieg the target? If you were an Amy Klobuchar, would you go after him if you're, well, for that matter, if you're Elizabeth Warren? And how, we haven't seen him uh, dealing with attacks before. 
Right. So it'll be interesting. So I mean, this is a, this is going to be a proving ground for him. Yeah. Um, and so whoever is the front runner or whoever is the new front runner is going to be the target of attacks. And I think that this is actually a pivotal moment for Buttigieg uh, because he has gained a lot of traction um, because of his positive message, because he is well spoken, because he is dynamic. And so, especially with a young candidate, he clamors for change. Um, the fact that he's a member of the LGBTQ community is something you know that um, some of his supporters you know sort of really see as a plus. Uh, but he's also 37 years old. He is mayor of a city of about 100,000 people. That's a college town. Um, and um, so, and you know, a lot of the things that he talks about sort of give people a certain feeling, but people are looking for detail. And I think what people are going to want to see in a candidate as young as he is, is that he's actually up for the task. Like, clearly, he's up for the debate. He's up for the telegenics. But, uh, you know, he's, whoever is president of the United States is going to have to inherit a lot of, of issues to deal with. So is somebody ready at that life stage with that level of experience to then move into that next stage? It's not like you've been a governor before. It's not like you've been a senator for a period of time. So I think the inexperience question is real. And if he doesn't handle that well tonight, then that could spell trouble for him in the long Jim? term. Well, number one on the inexperience, I think after, after, uh, uh, with, with the president that we, we're, we, we have right now, I think that does become an the Democratic side. They're, people are going to be worried about that. Uh, I want to see the dynamics between uh, Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren tonight, because I think in, in a way they are, they are the most diametrically opposed. Especially on, Medica- on their health care plan. Uh, especially, and they've been taking shots at each other yep. uh, uh, all week over, over, over that. But they also kind of, you know, they, 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 they share a, a, a good, they, they've got they're fighting over the dynamic youth vote i think i think the bernie's bernie people are, are bernie's people they've been bernie people for 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 eight years and more i think i think i think the the warren support and Buttigieg support are kind of more drawing off each other than 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 anywhere else i think so okay we'll watch to see how Buttigieg handles things we'll watch to see if he and elizabeth warren engage and whether elizabeth warren tries to soft pedal if she has any way of doing it she may be so locked into medicare for all that she doesn't have a sound answer for oh my gosh the plan that you put out there is scaring the heck out of people right i think you know (laughs) if you read what she has said that she will do it more in stages and maybe the first two years they walk it this way and then the third year they go for you know medicare for all and so it'll be interesting to see how she handles these questions i mean when you go against bill gates you know and kind of a public (laughs) confrontation not sure if it bodes well for your candidacy so we'll watch for that now let's look at some of the lower tier candidates um, well, you know what? I should start with you, Andre, because Cory Booker is somebody whose career you have really paid attention to. You wrote a book about mm-hmm. his tenure as mayor of Newark. Is he really, He's he occupies one of the outside mm-hmm. positions tonight. We've got, once again, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden right in the center. Bernie Sanders is there. Pete Buttigieg is up there, and they go out from there. On one end, you've got Cory Booker. On the other end, You've got Tom uh, Steyer. Huh? Tom Steyer. Yes, Tom Steyer. What about Cory Booker? Is this a make or break night for him? And for that matter, for uh, Kamala Harris 
I think it's a make or break night for a number of the candidates. So everybody who's on the periphery, I think this is a really important moment for them. Um, there are just fewer and fewer moments for these candidates who are, you know, on the periphery to be able to make points and to remind people that, you know, you should be thinking about us. The vote should be starting to consolidate as we get closer and closer to Iowa. So there are just fewer and fewer opportunities uh, to sort of get earned media like this and to be able to make that splash and to be able to continue to raise money. One of the things that I'll say is for all of these candidates who aren't going to make it through, it isn't necessarily something indictment against them. And so, you know, if we end up sort of having to do the postmortem on one of these candidates, I don't think it's because people hate them. I think that they have, you know, a lot of capacity to be able to come back and run again, but they were going up against a lot of challenges. There were too many people in the in this field, right? So it was really hard for people to gain traction. And in particular, I think people want to ask the question, well, why aren't African Americans rallying around Booker or Harris right now? I don't think it's because of antipathy at all. I think a lot of it is one, people were still trying to get to know them, and two, when it didn't look like they were not, when it didn't look like they were getting traction, um, it didn't make sense sometimes for people to put their support behind them because it would look like it was a wasted so, vote. So let me pick up on that, if I may, and, and Jim, bring you in too, and, and then let all of you take a crack at this. I, it strikes me, and and I could be completely wrong about this, but it, there is a difference between Cory Booker not picking up traction and Kamala Harris not gaining traction. I think. And what I mean by that, Jim, is, you know, we, I think Cory Booker, there are things we really understand about him. He's the consensus builder. He talks over and over again about we've got to start working together. It's a very positive message, a very lovely message. It just hasn't resonated. On the other hand, Kamala Harris has had, she had a confused message. She wasn't sure who she was and what she stood for from the start. So I see them as having different problems. One, just for whatever reason. Right, and, and, I would, and I would add to, to that that uh, a lot of the, the unrest on uh, the Harris, in the Harris campaign is coming directly out of California, which is her base. And that, so that's something you, you do have to, have to wonder about. Uh, and that will, that will become important. Uh, we've got, um, I'm looking up, uh, and just, I thought I might look up and see who's qualified for the December 19th debate in, in Los Angeles. And so far, we only have six. Yeah. Uh, Harris is one of them. Yeah, and so is Klobuchar, right? Uh, Klobuchar, but, yeah. uh, but Cory, Cory Booker is not no. one of them. No. Right. And it's a, and, 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 and the, uh, the polling level is, uh, you've got, you, you, you it, uh, rises up to six Six percent, two polls at six percent, uh, in the early nominating states. So uh, you know Biden would be safe with South Carolina and something. Uh, Buttigieg would be safe, safe with with uh, with Iowa and something. Yeah, but it, it, it's going to get a lot tougher now. So this could be the final debate for several of the candidates in this thing. Let's do this. Let's take our final break of the show. When we come back, I'd really love to hear what you all think. We're in Georgia for this debate tonight. What are the issues that you might want to focus on if you were on that stage that relates specifically to this state? This is Political Rewind live at Tyler Perry Studios in southwest Atlanta. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Ari Shapiro, host of All Things Considered. When I'm hosting the show, I'm always listening for the thing that's sticky, the thing that jumps out of the radio and grabs you, the thing that'll make you go home to your spouse or your kid or your friend and say, hey, you'll never believe what I heard today. All Things Considered. Listen every afternoon. Join us for All Things Considered this afternoon from 4 to 7 right here on GPB. You can also listen live online at gpbnews.org.
coastal Georgia is home to some big industries and fragile ecosystems. Why, why would we give up this coast that's the most unique coast for something that we know, scientifically know, is going to damage our animals? I'm Emily Jones, covering the coast for GPB. I'll help you understand the constant struggle to balance a growing economy with a thriving environment. GPB News. Stand with the facts. My name is Lauren Lynn, and I'm the Associate Director of Marketing for Georgia Farm Bureau. Georgia Farm Bureau is the voice of Georgia farmers, and we work earnestly to support the state's leading industry, agriculture. We underwrite with GPB. What I like about the programming is that it reaches a diverse audience, and it enables individuals or organizations the opportunity to share their messaging across the state. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. Back on Political Rewind, our special edition, two hours. That's a lot of programming, isn't it? I hope you will be here through it uh, with us. We're down here at Tyler Perry Studios getting set for the uh, fifth Democratic presidential debate, which kicks off at 9 o'clock tonight on uh, MSNBC. Uh, Washington Post will have it on their website. I don't know. Are we going to put this up on our website as well? We are. Good, good. Well, listen, watch it on our website. That would be great. Um, Before we talk about Georgia issues, um, Jim Galloway, let me start with you. Gordon Sondland is continuing to testify in front of the Intelligence Committee. You can, if you want to, listen to that or watch it at gpbnews.org. And he really has made some additional important connections between the president and uh, the uh, folks who are working in Ukraine saying, yes, it's pretty clear the president, Sundland says, did want a quid pro quo. All right. Um, so, simple question. How much do we really think the presidential candidates are going to want to talk about impeachment? They'll be asked the question. But they haven't been but, eager uh, but, to talk. But I would say I would say they will avoid it as much as they possibly can. Why? Uh, because this is the the old political rule. If you are digging a hole, if you, if the other fellow is digging a hole, you don't ask him to stop, and you don't. You, it's you know you just let him alone and, and do what he's doing. And I think I think that House Democrats right now are 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 doing some really significant damage to President Trump in terms of in terms of his standing with voters. Let me go right down the line. Do you think that, Andra? Well, I mean, I think the additional wrinkle is is that there are too many impeachment jurors who are going to be on that stage, and so there probably should be some circumspection in terms of what they talk about because they're going to eventually have to sit and decide whether or not President Trump uh, gets to keep his job. Um, On the other hand, though, it is like the, the 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 white elephant in the room, and so I think it might be really hard to avoid. So I wonder if it'll come up obliquely um, in terms of people trying to present themselves as not being corrupt, as if they're foreign policy questions. Um, You know, what does this look like? You know, the questions that I don't think will come up that I actually want to hear talk about is how do we remake institutions to put checks on executive power such that people don't think that they can get away with this type of behavior going forward? I think that that's a question that our country is going to have to reckon with, like, once this is all over. Um, And I don't think it's going to come up today. If you're a moderator of the debate, you want to hear what these candidates feel about what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've been watching. I also think um, they'll pivot because it's too soon right now. I think it's too soon to flush out what Americans and what voters 
are seeing and what they're feeling. And I think that they're going to want to pivot until they see exactly what the results will be of these, these, these actually the past two days, but especially the testimony from Ambassador Sondland today. And, and you've got to remember, I mean, we had, what, uh, 18 hours of testimony yesterday or something close to it. You're going to have another. Uh, I, I will be I, I will be interested to see if, if today's testimony doesn't overlap and cause networks to have to make a, a some some fairly difficult choices uh, uh, In terms this, of tonight. this this evening. Uh, and so you've got uh, there's this lag. There, there is going to be this information lag uh, because you've got all you've got these ten candidates who are traveling in a in a uh, in a bubble. They and their staff have not been tuned to the TV uh, in the last 48 hours, and a lot a lot of stuff has happened. All right, you got the ball, so let me uh, start it with you on this question. You're in Georgia tonight. You're a presidential candidate. What are the and you've got four? We haven't even talked about this, and in the next hour we'll get into it in a little more depth. You've got four uh, women moderators, uh, which in and of itself may reshape some of the big questions that are asked. It's the first time we've had an all-female panel in this cycle, um, so you've got to guess, right, Jim? Number one, that 481, the bill outlawing abortion virtually outlawing it in georgia is definitely going to be on the on the agenda yes yeah i would i, I would my my uh my uh, uh take on it would be quite quite short it's it's make, make sure that you're right with stacy abrams i was gonna say i mean how do you differentiate uh, if you're a candidate well, because it, right. because i mean she's she's laid out she's laid out an agenda for for every presidential candidate to follow uh 481 is one of them voter suppression is is uh is the other one and i think you're going to have a lot of candidates speak to that you've already had have amy klobuchar have have an event on that you had i think tom perez the dnc chair with an event on that so i i would presume and, that that's going yeah, to be a tom topic. steyer essentially i'm sorry andrew yang essentially talked about it too when he talked about lowering the voting age and he was here in atlanta to do it to 16 among other things that he wanted to do so okay but laurie before we you're right i mean everybody is it just raise your it's a hand? short answer i think right well except are there nuances at all among Democratic voters about certain aspects of the right to choose um, that it's appropriate to have certain limits on the stage at which it will? I, I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out because I don't know the answer to that. I think in a Democratic primary, probably not. Andra? I think it gets a little bit tricky. Yeah, I mean, I think that that one's probably a, a little more difficult, but I think talking more broadly um, about women's health and about reproductive justice, talking about maternal mortality rates, yeah. which are terrible here and where yeah. the racial disparities are Yeah, which is another huge. issue likely to come yeah. up and, so, and here's where the, 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 the dividing line is. There are going to be people who are going to be able to speak with courage, conviction, and having like really studied the issues. And I think this is, is Pete Buttigieg's problem. I was talking about this with a reporter friend, but it's something that I've talked about with other people as well. Part of Buttigieg's problem with African-American voters, you know, is the age issue. Um, but it's also this issue of when he talks about issues related to race. Um, and, and, and I think that this could be expended, not for him, but we should also talk about sort of issues related to gender. You can tick off all the right things to say. Um, 
But there is a way that you can speak about this with authority, and he just hasn't developed that authority yet to talk about those issues. And broadly speaking, for all of these issues, they're going to be people who are going to talk about this like they read a term paper in class um, in college, and then they're going to be people who have actually been thinking about this and working on the front lines. And so distinctions are, if we're going to talk about income inequality, if we're going to talk about class inequality, are you going to make the Bernie Sanders 2016 mistake of conflating sort of class uh, with race and saying class explains everything and race goes away, right? That's a big turnoff for voters. When you talk about this, those issues do you know the talking points or do you actually sort of have an intimacy with the issues and have you worked in these before and if the candidates can convey that that's where we're going to see those distinctions and i think that's where joe biden will come in strong um, because he's worked on these issues for how many years um and he has that presence on stage i know he's been weak in some of the debates before um you know, and, and maybe seemed a little bit out of it at times and couldn't remember things but i think if he can bring out the personality that we've seen before, I think that's where he can shine. Well, you just, uh, you just pointed out another thing everybody would be watching tonight, and that's how strong is Joe Biden? How how present? How energized uh, is he? Uh, you know what, though? He continues to command the field in national polls, uh, so maybe that hasn't mattered so far, except that as people like Buttigieg start to creep up on him, it's interesting to watch. Galloway, you mentioned uh, that people want to get right with Stacey Abrams' voter suppression being the biggest way. Right. You and Medi- Medicaid expansion, I and think. Medicaid under- expansion, mm-hmm. right, exactly. Okay, so on voter suppression, Amy Klobuchar here in town yesterday uh, put out a pretty interesting plan. She wants to require uh, hand balloting across the country. My first question about that is elections are run by states. I mean, the notion of the federal, I'm not quite sure how she would uh, execute this plan other than to make it a recommendation. It's an interesting thought. She also wants to eliminate laws that would allow people to purge uh, their voter rolls just on the basis of the length of time it's been since you last cast a ballot. Again, those are interesting concepts, but we traditionally handle elections state by state. Right, right. And this is, and, and, and quite frankly, this is where, this is where in the last uh, three or four years since, uh, since the Russian issue has crept up, that's, that where things have kind of gone aground in Congress. Because you still have Republicans, many of many of them from Georgia, who look askance on a federal government that is setting requirements for for voting machines and 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 uh, algorithms and, and such for for states. They I, don't like it. I think also on the hand marking ballot issue, I think you also have to be realistic and take a step back because at some point. At some point, you're going to have to put those into a computer. At some point, you're going to have yeah. to put those into a machine. You're not going to have people just tallying them by hand. So, you know, technology is here, and I think, you know, the call for, for hand ba- hand-marked ballots is, is outdated. Andra, it does. It, it's, it makes sense that Klobuchar would uh, highlight these things here in Georgia where there were so many concerns nationwide about what how much voter suppression may have taken place in the 2018 race. But, again, is that... I don't want to call it, it's not fair to say it's just posturing. It's not, but it's hard to put in place, isn't it? Well, um, the uh, uh, requirement to change the law to make sure that you can't be purged for non-voting um, is actually a really interesting proposal. It was something that I would actually probably prefer to be tested at a state to see how it works. Um, you know, in part, this relates to a Supreme Court decision that said that it's perfectly constitutional to be able to do this, and so this would be a way to actually create a statute that would circumvent. Can you do that in a congressional act? Could Congress pass a law that would mandate that oh, yeah. state to state? Yeah. But, okay, without, I guess what I should really say is 
wouldn't there be enormous pushback on, uh, to, to doing that in Congress? Could you really win the votes to do it? Oh, in this Congress, yeah, yeah, it would probably be difficult to do. But the idea that, you know, Congress couldn't, you know, regulate that right. or a state themselves couldn't regulate it just because it's constitutional doesn't mean that it's required. Right. Okay. Um, and so that's a that's a really interesting proposition, um, you know, because it does raise the issue of, you know, are we making it easier for people to vote or are we making it harder for people to vote? And what is the real reason behind us purging voter rolls in that particular right. manner? And it gets and it gets it gets at a very important issue if, if you, you're on the Democratic side of things. We are going through a vast demographic change in this country, Georgia especially, and and whenever that happens, whenever you you do see it, it is fought out over the right to vote and who can and who cannot cast a ballot. All right, uh, we are almost out of time before we have to get to an NPR news break, and um, and I'm going to lose the three of you as panelists. So I do want to turn to one other issue, Jim Galloway, and that was what came up in my conversation this morning with uh, Senator Purdue. We think Brian Kemp is getting closer and closer. He has to be getting closer and closer to naming someone to replace Johnny Isaacson. You all reported in the jolt this morning that Congressman Doug Collins is suggesting that if he doesn't get the nod from the governor, he may just run for that seat, regardless of who the governor puts in place. Purdue said he wouldn't presume to advise Collins one way or another on that. But I imagine, but more important is that's a big, bold move by Collins. And what does it tell us that he's worried about? Okay, if, 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 you're, if you're making those kinds of noises in the presence of a, of a governor, you are, you are fearful that this prize is slipping away from you. Uh, uh, because number one, you're taking a huge risk. When you say that you're going to run anyway, that is, that is more or less a threat to a sitting governor. That's how he's going to interpret it. He's not, he's not going to read it well. Yeah, how, how does that how does that play out, Lori? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean that pretty much says right there that Doug Collins will probably not be the pick if he's threatening that, and that's kind of a big sign to Governor Kemp. Like, okay, you're not going to pick me, then guess what? You know, I'm going to go against your candidate. But I think also, I mean, this is such a crucial decision for Governor Kemp. And if you think about it, you know, at the top of the ticket, it's going to be President Donald Trump on the Republican side, and then it's going to be D- David Perdue, and you've got two white men. So would it make sense for him to pick another white male, or are we talking about a female or an African-American candidate to really, I mean, you want to pull Republicans and, and, and you know, make that umbrella bigger. Here's your, your really good chance. This would make more sense if Georgia were more solidly Republican. So this would have made more sense 10 years ago to pull this Maverick move than to do it now for a couple of reasons. So this idea of going for broke in a jungle primary, right, where all you're doing is risking sort of splitting up the Republican vote. Um, yeah, I mean, in the days where you could have predicted that it was going to be one-two, um, Republican, you know, two Republicans were going to end up in a runoff. Yeah, I'd be like, okay, you got a pretty decent chance of making it into those top two. What I see happening now is something akin to Alabama minus, hopefully, all of the discussion of pedophilia. What is that? Um, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, what Collins, I think, is banking on is that he can get the support of the president, and that President Trump will come and do some big rally. So, first of all, I will just say, from an empirical standpoint, because we haven't tested it yet, I am very skeptical of the fact that uh, Donald Trump is like the secret sauce that actually helped people win nominations or help win elections. Well, voters in Louisiana and Kentucky Kentucky. would agree. But if I did actually believe that, the fact that he has not been as helpful uh, to recent gubernatorial candidates suggests that I would not be placing all of my bets on Donald Trump uh, 
giving me some kind of yeah. endorsement I, to I, put I, me over. Absolutely, no. I think it says. Uh, I, th- I think it says worlds about uh, Republican concerns that Donald Trump may actually hurt them in November by next November. All right. So we do think that the governor is going to act soon. He's got interesting choices, Jim. The choices that he has among those who have applied, interestingly, are more diverse than the face of the Republican Party in Georgia itself, right? Right. Right, right, and 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 if you if you t- pay attention to the people who have joined the contest lately, uh, Kelly Loeffler on on Monday, uh, Robin Crittenden, uh, African American, uh, former acting uh, Secretary of State, uh, late last week, uh, you've got. Uh, you get the feeling that the governor is is reaching out and trying to to at least make sure that he has the person a, a somebody lined up if he wants to go in a particular uh, direction. Said, Purdue said to me today, I think it would be great if he had a running mate, as he called him, on the ticket who uh, represented that diversity in one way or another, an African American or a woman, which was. Well, I mean, I th- I think for sure if you look at the boxes that Republicans have to check, where are they losing the most? Yeah. It's a suburban white women, and I think he's got some really good choices, you know, in that category. You got 20 seconds for the final word, Andre. So look, one of the things, if you put forward a diverse candidate, don't expect Democratic women to vote for a Republican woman. Uh, woman and don't expect uh, minority Democratic minorities to vote for a Republican. Yeah, you've made that point on the show before, and I'm glad you bring it back up today. Look, we are completely out of time, except I do want to say I tweeted this out immediately after our show the other day. We got misinformation. We had suggested that we had said that uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, uh, Harold Melton had put himself into the running. I tweeted out that we had gotten bad information. I just want to make sure on the next show we correct that. He decided not to enter the race, and I'm very sorry that we uh, sent out bad information on that. All right, we're going to pause now for a uh, an NPR news break. Jim Galloway, Dr. Andre Gillespie, Lori Geary, thank you so much for being here at Tyler Perry Studios. We're going to be back with uh, Amy Steigerwald and Howard Franklin and uh, Greg Bluestein's roaming around here somewhere in the media center. We'll grab him, too. So stay with us. We'll be back after NPR's newscast. It's a minute before 3 o'clock. You're listening to GPB, an 18-station radio network of Georgia Public Broadcasting. Coming up next, Fresh Air with Terry Gross. You can listen live online at gpbnews.org or check out our GPB apps at your favorite app store. Support for GPB comes from our monthly sustainers. And Georgia DBHDD Office of Behavioral Health Prevention urging people to ask a pharmacist about naloxone. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Naloxone may be stored wherever people work or play. And the Savannah Music Festival presenting St. Paul and the Broken Bones, Junior Brown with the Hot Club of Cowtown, Mandolin Orange, Robert Spano and Robert McDuffie, and more. SavannahMusicFestival.org. This is Georgia Public Broadcasting, streaming online at gpb.org and on the GPB radio apps. From the Tyler Perry Studios in southwest Atlanta, welcome to the second hour of this pre-debate edition of Political Rewind. 
We're coming to you live from the Debate Media Center, just yards away from the Oprah Winfrey soundstage, where 10 Democratic candidates for president will square off in a crucial debate tonight. How will the debate shape the remaining weeks before Iowa voters choose a Democratic candidate for president? Will this be the final time on stage for some of the lowest polling candidates? Will Pete Buttigieg face attacks as polls show him on the rise in early voting states? Will the moderates on stage take the spotlight from Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who some Democrats fear have agendas that are too liberal for most voters? We'll look at those questions and more after the news. Welcome to the second hour of our special edition of Political Rewind. We're down here live at Tyler Perry Studios, where at 9 o'clock tonight, 10 Democratic candidates for president will uh, take part in the fifth debate of the campaign season. If you don't normally watch us on Facebook Live, actually today would be a good day for you to do that um, because um, you can see the media center where we're all uh, broadcasting from today. There are some close to 500, I think, journalists who have credentials to watch this debate here tonight. We're in, in the media center is right next door to the Oprah Winfrey studio, which is where the debate itself will take place. And when the debate is over, the candidates or their representatives or both will make their way into this room to do the, the spin uh, with reporters that comes after every uh, debate like this one. Greg Bluestein uh, joins us for this hour of the show, AJC political reporter. Uh, Bluestein, you guys, you, Tia Mitchell, Jim Galloway, uh, everybody on your staff has been, there's so many events taking place around town. You've been all pretty busy. This is kind of like our Super Bowl. Yeah. And, so, and tomorrow's going to be even busier than, than yesterday. I mean, today will be a late, late, late day. But tomorrow there's four or five different events that are public alone and then many, many more private events. I noticed, by the way, that Al Sharpton is in town, and he's having an event at uh, with most of the big candidates. Four or five candidates will be there, yeah. I, I do want to call Reverend Al's attention to the fact that the news release talks about the fact that it is going to take place at the historic Pascal's restaurant. Well, the historic Pascal's restaurant was on MLK, and sadly, it closed down a while ago. This is the new the fancy, fancy one, Pascals yeah. Where, where a lot of Democratic events side. have already been. Cory Booker had an event there not that long ago, so it's a, it's becoming a political hotspot, even though it's it's not the historic. Right site. next to you is Howard Franklin. He is a Democratic consultant, strategist, and uh, does a lot of work on uh, government relations issues. Um, Howard. Have you been out to the event so far? Not only have I been out to them, we actually hosted a few. Uh, Greg popped by yesterday at our office, so we've well, been pretty well, busy. Oh, what, did you, who did, what did you do there? DNC and the Democratic Party of Georgia, along with Stacey Abrams and a bunch of other uh, voting empowerment luminaries, did a breakfast yesterday, including our uh, esteemed chairwoman, Nakima Williams. Um, and... Amy Steigerwald is here. Uh, Dr. Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University and 
I am very happy to say a major Atlanta United supporter. Hi, Amy. <laughs> Go United. <laughs> tough tough to loss. Yes, thank you for having me. So I want to start with you, if I may, uh, because this is an issue that we did not talk about in the first hour of the show, or not an issue, but it's an interesting uh, piece of information. Mm -hmm. We're going to have four female moderators tonight. Indeed we are. The first time that we've had an all-female mm -hmm. Panel up there, three of them are NBC, one Washington Post. How do you imagine? Because dealing with women in politics is one of the areas of expertise that you've developed over the years. How might we see a somewhat different approach tonight than we've seen? in the past four debates. That, I think, is what's going to be see interesting of how it is that they handle this, how they handle particularly when uh, candidates maybe are not adhering to the time or start to um, jump over each other, uh, particularly some of the moderators. Maybe up there, Rachel Maddow is really good at keeping people on track. When she's got guests, that's one thing that she's able to keep them and very uh let's say, nicely, gently, firmly cut them off. And so I think we're going to see a lot of that. I think we might also, um, it's been a critique of the previous debates, and so I think we're much more likely to see some questions tonight coming up about sort of reproductive rights and reproductive justice issues, um, as well as issues that focus perhaps more on uh, those that are of concern. So, for example, uh, Ashley Parker from the Washington Post is a fairly new mother that is on there. And so I could imagine that, you know, a particular issue that might come up is health care, uh, not only health care, but also child care of what it means to make that transition back into the workplace and issues like that. Um, Howard, similarly, here we are at Tyler Perry Studios in southwest Atlanta. We made the point in the first hour that this was a shrewd location for Democrats to choose, uh, given that Tyler Perry has created the only African-American-owned uh, film studio, television studio in the country. There are 12 sound stages here, each one named for an African-American artist. They'll be on the Oprah Winfrey stage, which is right next door to where we are uh, right now. Um, and yet, I'm not sure that, uh, aside from picking this as a location, we know just how some of the candidates tonight are going to address issues of the African-American community. For example, Pete Buttigieg, who has suddenly moved up strongly in the polls in Iowa and New Hampshire, has yet to find his way with African-American voters. So there's, it's going to be interesting to watch how that unfolds tonight as well. I imagine every one of the candidates will invoke the shared sense of history um, and the responsibility, the civil rights movement, all the luminaries that have been born and bred, and uh, not only in Atlanta but in the neighboring cities that have contributed to the to the movement. Uh, and many of the answers, many of the questions you hear tonight, uh, and I think it, it, it's very fitting. I mean, we talk about kind of the first couple states; they have a an enlarged amount of import in this process, but. This process, this primary, these caucuses do run through the South. There are you know, a substantial number of delegates we picked up here. And I did some math. Not a single one of the 24, 25 original uh, Democratic candidates hails from this region. So it's, it should be, you know, on paper, at least wide open. 
That's interesting. I didn't realize not a single one. Not a one. Eight Eight from Texas. Southern. And I guess Senator Booker lived here for a little bit, but he's, he's certainly not from Atlanta. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Um, when, when I talked, to, when I was around at the different events earlier this week, I asked, what questions do you want to hear to the candidates? And Senator Klobuchar was very blunt. She goes, I can't believe there hasn't been a question about voting rights, and there's no better place than to bring that up than Georgia, which was sort of the epicenter of the voting rights uh, uh, political battle last, in last year's gubernatorial race. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We talked uh, in the last hour about the fact that Klobuchar has a pretty aggressive plan for dealing with voter suppression, Amy. She wants to uh, uh, tell states they have to vote with paper ballots, that uh, they cannot throw out registrations, they can't purge their rolls on the basis uh, only of how uh, infrequently people may have voted. Uh, So she clearly came to Atlanta understanding uh, what the grounds were here on which she might want to fight her battle. I think definitely so, and it is a good issue. I mean, this is one which I think plays to not only sort of the Democratic base, but much more broadly that as people are learning more about um, both enfranchisement as well as disenfranchisement, the issues that are affecting those who have, for example, uh, been incarcerated and now are not, but still have fines, for example, and that prevents them. The issues that people have getting to the polling places, the issues for a lot of people simply of the fact that we, for example, don't have have a national holiday and this question of whether or not people should be voting and to what degree we want people to turn out and so seeing that type of uh i think that's the first as far as i know the first game to come out with a really very strong uh project on there and i think that'll be important i, I mentioned in the first hour too that uh andrew yang uh did say he wants to lower the voting age to 16. That was something he, too, was in Atlanta promoting. Greg, were you at that event by any chance? Um, he, he, he sent it out as a sort of a, a press release. Oh, okay, um, sorry. So there was no event, although he did play basketball with Dominique Wilkins on Monday night. That's, I said on the show on I wish Monday, I was there. that was the event I wanted. I was, the event, I was a Hillary Clinton, or else I would have called that one for the AJC. Didn't Bill, I, think, I think it's also worth mentioning not only all the things that Amy mentioned, but Cybersecurity, the voting tampering that took place in 2016, it still is either yet unresolved, yet uninvestigated, or no uh, conclusive decisions have been made for the 50 different secretaries of state and the thousands of local elections boards who are conducting a presidential election in just over a year. So right away, it's interesting to listen to all of you, because right away you're telling us uh, that we might hear some different things being discussed up there. Uh, Amy, you say more perhaps on women's issues like reproductive rights, women's health, uh, maybe more on voter suppression. Um, so it, that in and of itself makes this perhaps a, a more interesting or, or, or a new approach on the debate tonight. It does. Another issue that Democrats really want to hear is HBCUs. I mean, we, we, I was in Houston at the Texas Southern University, uh, which is an HBCU, and it didn't come up once. Senator Harris had to bring it up herself. And so there's a lot of hope from local Democrats that uh, you know Atlanta being a center, or the Atlanta University Center right around the corner, that, that the issue of funding, better funding uh, HBCUs and over Overall, the broader college affordability um, uh, debate comes up tonight. So, Greg, uh, you're a veteran of these things this cycle. How many of these debates have you been This is number three. Your third one. You were in Houston. Uh, You were in uh, Ohio Ohio for another one. So, first of all, we think there are something like, I think I said, 500 journalists credentialed for this event tonight. Why don't you give our listeners who (laughs) I used to do these all the time. I haven't done them for a long time, but... 
Give our listeners a little sense, just some color, on what it's like to be in the media center uh, throughout the debate. How are people watching it? You know, I think a yeah. lot of people out there think, oh, well, we're sitting in the debate hall uh, watching it live as it unfolds. We're not. We're not sitting at in a all. media center. There are TV monitors set up everywhere. So tell us a little So about we're it. watching the debate much like you guys will at home tonight, which is, except we'll be in a very cramped se- <laughs> row of seating um, with close to about 500 of our closest friends watching a, an awkward angle, peering upwards, straining our necks, uh, depending on where we're sitting, a, a, a handful of flat screen TVs and one big giant screen on a, on a wall. Um, it's actually a smaller venue than than some of the others because usually um, these events are at campus college campuses and so they'll have they'll use the a theater as the debate venue and then they'll put the media in like a campus gym you know i i thought of that too that it's a smaller venue um we're going to see when the debate ends we're going to see candidate representatives and in some cases candidates themselves come in here to do spin this spin room is really there's small. not a whole lot of room out of there's the yeah. dance floor in here is relatively small for, and it's going to be a real crush and, afterwards and it's why if you're like probably like howard you probably got a lot of uh, democrats upset that they didn't get um tickets wondering how to get tickets because the the venue next door is also equally small i mean there's about a thousand space for a thousand people but it's really cramped in and a lot of people a lot of politicians, a lot of donors and activists, a lot of people who thought they should get a ticket didn't get one. Howard, uh, you have a ticket for tonight, yes? <clears throat> Actually, I don't. Whoa. Whoa. This is all I'm doing. Uh, I, I've done a little bit of television this morning, and I think I have one or two more interviews lined up. But honestly, you got to make a decision. It's hard to do both. I've, I've had evenings like this where you're trying to pay attention to what's going on, on the screen, and then you get pulled onto a platform to ask questions or answer questions. I, I made my commitment. I'm happy to be here with you guys. All right. So, uh, But you are well aware of how tickets were handed out. Oh, yeah, the, absolutely. The 1,000 or whatever yeah. it is tickets. That process has got to have left a few people very happy. It's kind of like Brian Kemp's... Uh, Put in your application to be the next senator. <laughs> One person, a few people are happy, the rest are miserable. That's yeah? about right. I mean, remember, we've got some, roughly 6,000 elected officials yeah. in the state. That's not before you get to, you know, the big donors or activists, et cetera. So everyone's not going to be happy. And that's just the state, right? Think about national. That's exactly right. But right. I, I would just say, thankfully, there are a ton of great parties, a ton of great events for those who can't cram their way into the, the Oprah Winfrey uh, South Station. All right. Well, thank you. I think the color is an interesting thing to give our uh, listeners just a little bit of a sense of. Amy, let's go back to the issues and and what we think might play out on the stage tonight. Mm -hmm. Friday night, or Friday during the day, President Obama on a stage with Stacey Abrams uh, cautioned Democrats they should be thinking about incremental change, gradual change, not throwing everything out mm-hmm. and starting all over again. He did not mention any candidates, mm-hmm. but the first name that we do think about is Elizabeth Warren, Medicare for all, Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all. How do you think the president's caution, or more important perhaps, the fact that the atmosphere seems to be, there seems to be a feeling out there, we better be careful about going too far. How do you think that might play out on the stage tonight? 
I'm not sure. I'm really interested to see what happens. I mean, we have seen sort of in that time Elizabeth Warren step back her plan a bit and now sort of give a kind of phase one and phase two plan for Medicare for all. Um, Somewhat ironically, the new plan she's put out is much more of a traditional Warren type plan. It's incredibly wonky. It gets into very technical details that we sort of have come to expect from her in a way that the original plan didn't. But I I think that there is something, and maybe that's part of the debate, of what do uh, the candidates offer? Is it about sort of suggesting, like, look, this is what in our perfect world we want to see happen? Should it be a much more sort of pragmatic discussion of what can happen and where we should go? And I think the other issue that lots of people are still struggling, and I'll be honest, as a political scientist, I'm struggling with it, is this question of what are the voters reacting to, right? There, for example, is this core group that no matter what, they also support the president. They're going to vote for the president. And so then there's this question of, okay, who are the voters that we could potentially appeal to that are not also solidly Democratic voters um, and that, you know, perhaps in that last election swung towards Trump? And I think some of the issue that lots of people are trying to figure out is what does appeal to those string voters? What is it that caused them to vote for Trump last time and that would bring them back over to this side? I, I want to pick up on that in a couple minutes. Uh, uh, be, but before we get even more uh, deeply into to that very thing, um, Howard, what's your sense of, uh, as you talk to Democratic friends of yours who are working actively uh, as professionals or, or friends who are voters, uh, is there a worry that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have driven the party too far to the left, or are there, or are people very happy that there's this uh, urge to shake things up completely among, by their campaigns? I just think the 2016 election of Donald Trump has really um, thrown open the doors to this this national debate about electability, and I think Democrats across the country are realizing that it's both art and science, that there's no way to put it up on a chart, you know, to get Steve Kornacki or someone to say, hey, here's how many points you'd have in electability. And I think the various candidates are making the case, you know, you guys were talking about Warren and some of her big plans, whether, you know, do Democrats want big structural change or are we more interested in beating Donald Trump? Well, how do you feel about this, Howard? I'm conflicted, too. I, I want the the man or the woman who can beat Donald Trump, right? I want to retake the White House and, and to lead the charge for the Senate. And I, I'm not as concerned. I think I think also watching both a, a President Trump and a President Obama uh, without the ability to convene or to marshal their House and Senate to make these decisions really shows how important those folks are. All right, Greg, I want to get you in here. And, and as I do, though, Howard gives me the perfect opportunity to uh, talk about a Gallup poll, which was released yesterday. And it speaks to the very issue that Howard was just mentioning. Uh, Here's the headline, uh, or the lead. As candidates continue to join the field, and we'll talk about that, who's not uh, here uh, tonight, uh, for the 2020 Democratic nomination, Democrats nationwide are steadfast in prioritizing electability, Greg, as a key trait they're looking for. Six in ten Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents, Gallup found out, are looking to nominate the candidate with the best chance of beating Donald Trump, even if that person doesn't share their views on key issues. On the other side of that, 36 percent say they'd rather have the reverse, a candidate aligned with them on almost all the issues, even if that person is not the most electable. And there you've got it. 
Pete Buttigieg or Joe Biden, perhaps, and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Yeah, and I, I think you're starting to see the makings of a moment for moderates. I don't know how long it will last or if it will be durable or, or if it will just be fleeting and go away in a week. But you're seeing Pete Buttigieg rise in the polls in Iowa, New Hampshire. Still has problems in South, South Carolina, but it's another story. Um, you're seeing Joe Biden continue to be at the top of most national polls. You're seeing two more mainstream moderate candidates get in or at least flirt about getting in the race with Mayor Bloomberg and Governor Patrick of Massachusetts. Um, and you're seeing these poll numbers that not only, not only show that, but also show continuing problems with Medicare for all among a broader electorate. So those are all issues that that Buttigieg, Biden, and maybe even Bloomberg and and Klobuchar and and um, Patrick can capitalize on. Well, 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 go ahead. Sure. I was going to say it. I think one thing that's interesting, though, also is that when we discuss electability, on the other side of it, polls and a lot of the research that, for example, colleagues of mine have done show that this focus on electability harms candidates of color as well as female candidates. They're not our traditional model of who is a uh, particularly commander in chief. There is still a long, uh, there was a poll that came out recently that suggested that a fairly high number of people were still not sure that they were actually comfortable with the idea of a woman being the president. And that's something that they've really got to address. And what's interesting about that is in Georgia, at least, when you, the, the bulk of the endorsements so far for Joe Biden have been from African-American politicians and women, mm-hmm. um, like Mayor Bottoms, Calvin Smyrie, a, a two dozen state African-American state lawmakers. Mm-hmm. So I, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of dichotomy there. I think it's a lot like a microcosm of politics in general. You know, everyone's got very strongly held beliefs about what should be happening in politics, even if they don't have very strongly held grasps of how politics actually works. You know, we're talking about electability here, and I'm not a political science in the sense that Amy is, but I, I don't think that the people who are responding to these polls really know what they are. They, they know what they think it means, but not necessarily That's how it true. would actually play out across 50 states come November the 3rd. Well, okay, but let me ask you a question about that. I I think that's probably correct. But when a voter hears Elizabeth Warren essentially say, uh, yeah, I'm going to take away your private health care and you're going to be in a government-run system, that's something they can grasp relatively easily, and and it's playing in very mixed ways among voters. I totally agree, but I do have to acknowledge, I mean, the fleeting norms in our national politics since, you know, oh, about 2015, 2014, when Donald J. Trump, you know, rolled down that escalator. I think it's, it's, it's impossible until someone does it. I, I'm not, and this is not an endorsement of that plan, but I do think you, you know, with enough communication uh, and with a, enough forcefulness around a single issue, she might bring enough folks around to, to win the primaries. Okay. Well, and also on a wonky note, uh, the original version of the public option that was in the Affordable Care Act was actually written by the Heritage Foundation. So there's also the side of, you know, how <laughs> things shift and, and who is on what side and, and how we're debating these things. All right. I, speaking of electability, I want to bring this down to, to Georgia. Uh, Survey USA, uh, which gets a pretty good score from 538's uh, poll ratings. We kind of like to talk about polls that are rated well by 538 and sort of ignore the others. They just released some new figures, too, about Georgia voters. And uh, one of the, here's what's interesting about that, I think. Um, If you take Biden, Warren, Sanders, Buttigieg, Harris and Bloomberg uh, and put them in that fantasy matchup, which, Greg, we acknowledge right now, fantasy matchups are not worth a whole lot, except they're kind of a snapshot of where people are at at the moment. 
The only one who beats Trump in that group, is, I'm sorry, no, Biden uh, beats uh, uh, Trump 47-43, Sanders beats Trump 47-44, Warren is kind of a push, Buttigieg loses to him, Trump beats Harris, and Trump beats Bloomberg. Fantasy matchups, but what does that say to you? Well, they're a snapshot of where Georgia's electorate is, and, and it, really that echoes the AJC poll. The AJC poll showed that Biden was the only candidate that kind of the, who, who led Trump outside the margin of error. All the others led Trump, but we know much tighter margin. It's, what it says is this race is competitive, and look, every Republican official um, will tell you either on the record or off, they, they agree, too, that this state is a they, they see the state as a battleground in last year's election as a wake up call. All right. What I will also say, though, is all of the shifts yeah. are to Trump's detriment. Yes. Uh, if you look at what's happened over the last couple weeks, um, that it was much closer. Many of them he was tying with or he was beating them. And so that's interesting as well. So there's, I it's, love it's small having movement. someone who knows polls. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> as I'm reading no, all across towns. And <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that, in fact, is is really wonderful. Thank you very much, uh, Amy Steigerwald. Um, let's take talk a couple more minutes and then we'll take our our break. Um, and we're going to bring Tia Mitchell's going to come in and uh, spend some time with us. She was on our show for the first time, your new Washington correspondent. We're so excited to have her here today. And we're really looking forward to having her in here. Before we do that, though, um, let me ask this. Uh, Amy, start with you and go down the line. Is Pete Buttigieg, given the Des Moines Register poll, which shows him out front by a considerable margin now in Iowa, and the St. Anselm poll, which we saw for the first time this morning in New Hampshire, it's a small Catholic College in New Hampshire, shows Buttigieg moving into the front. Is he the guy that everybody is going to attack tonight? Possibly. I think they're all going to, unfortunately, attack each other, and that's sort of how these are set up. But I do think he's the one that's starting to, to get the attention, and so will probably be challenged more than he has been yet. Howard? I expect that Biden and I think Warren probably have the most to lose with this surge. I think uh, the polling that I've, I've taken a look at shows that he cuts most uh most directly into their basis of support. And so I could certainly see them both, uh, you know, current or once in future front runners who want to reclaim that crown, who know what it looks like to be under those bright lights and know how to attack or go on attack and also defend themselves. All right, Greg Bluestein. My bet is that Biden lays off, Buttigieg at least, but you'll start seeing some of the other second tier candidates, uh, maybe even Amy Klobuchar, maybe Harris, go after him because exactly they, they take, they, they cut from the same base. So. so. Before we let you go and before we take our break, as the uh, real uh, expert on covering these things, uh, Blue State, this cycle, uh, what's the most important thing you're looking for tonight? I'm looking for George. Well, because it's here in Atlanta, our story is more Georgia specific. Um, you know, it's, it's different than covering a national debate in Ohio, let's say. So I'm looking for Georgia-specific questions. I'm looking for voting rights, heartbeat bill, college affordability, issues that Georgia voters really want to hear from. I'm, I'm looking at that. There's a, there's also a broader story to be told that we'll tell, too, but I'm looking for the Georgia stuff. So uh, uh, as we go to the break, will you be blogging throughout the evening, or is it political insider? Is the AJC going to be yes, doing Tia some bo- has blogging, that podcasting? Today. What are you going to be doing? We'll be blogging. We'll be podcasting. We'll be doing Facebook Lives. Oh. We'll be be having all sorts of things we had 
I think I think Monday I ended up running eight stories alone myself. Tia probably had five or six others. So there's just a lot going on. So right, and well, then vacation. <laughs> then vacation. A well-deserved vacation. Greg Bluestein, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Tia Mitchell will be joining us. Howard Franklin, Amy Steigerwald will stay with us. We are live here at Tyler Perry Studios. If you're watching on Facebook Live, you're seeing a shot right now of this media center that's beginning to fill up a little bit as journalists prepare for a 9 o'clock start time for tonight's debate. We'll be back in just a moment. That car of yours you no longer need. What to do? Selling it can be a hassle. Consider donating it to support this station. It's easy. Pickup is free. It could be worth hundreds of dollars in support, and you could even get a tax deduction. Get the process started today. Give us a call to learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle, and thanks. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org cars, and thanks. There is a lot of data out there, and it's not always clear where that fits into the big picture of this economy. Retail sales are still pretty strong. Um, paychecks are still growing. Um, folks are still spending money. It's just how long will that last? How long can consumers continue to prop up the economy? How long indeed? I'm Kai Rizdal. Where you fit in this economy next time on Marketplace. Join us for Marketplace coming up tonight at 6 on GPB. Welcome back to this special edition, two-hour edition of Political Rewind, live from Tyler Perry Studios on the southwest side of Atlanta. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, we're getting set, as are some close to 500 other journalists who will be assembling here tonight for the fifth Democratic presidential debate in this election cycle. Amy Steigerwald, Georgia State University political science professor, Howard Franklin, government affairs. We say government of relations kind of expert. He's a lobbyist in addition <laughs> to uh, being a political consultant. Do you have candidates yet in this cycle? We haven't so asked you that. We have talked about uh, Teresa Tomlinson oh, in the Senate race, yes, but right. beyond that, I've not made any of the commitments. No. Okay, okay. Um, and we're joined by Tia Mitchell, who is the new AJC Washington Bureau correspondent. You're not new to the AJC, though. We want to make sure people know that, Tia. That's right. I've been covering DeKalb County for the last two years. Well, DeKalb County, Washington, D.C. It's some similarities <laughs> and some differences, I must say. <laughs> right. uh, Tia, let me start with you, if I may. Um, so I asked Bluestein, as he uh, uh, went off to uh, uh, do some reporting again, what he, what the most important thing he was looking for to unfold tonight? Do you know yet what what you're going to be focusing on primarily? What do you hope to learn tonight? And you can tell me how similar or different yeah, our matter. answers are, but I am wondering how much the setting of Atlanta shapes the questions that are asked. For example, will, will there be discussion about voter suppression? Will there, will there be discussion about civil rights issues, knowing that Atlanta, you know, has a historic place in civil rights history as the birthplace of Martin Luther King and the cradle of the civil rights movement? Will there be a talk, talk about access to health care, particularly for women because of the heartbeat bill? And so that's part one, but I also am wondering how the all-women, all-female panel yeah. will impact the debate as well. Yeah, and Amy, you mentioned that at the very beginning of this hour, and I want to go back to it, because what I'd like you to do is help us understand 
the significance of the female vote in a state like Georgia in this election cycle? I'm not talking data. Mm -hmm. But just the trends and where you think things stand. Well, what we have seen over time, which is sort of important, is a disconnect. It used to be that women, number one, voted a lot less than men. And when they did vote, they basically voted the same as their husbands. And they were following what they were told. We are starting to see both uh, a huge increase in the number of women who are voting and actually churning out and becoming politically uh, involved in things. And that includes running for office as well. Um, we're also seeing a real shift of there being a disconnect, right, within households of how it is that uh, women and men, husbands and wives are voting, which is important in and of itself. And I would say uh, one of the things in Georgia, which is particularly important, is, is two, really. Uh, number one is uh, African-American women who in many ways have driven the vote in a lot of places um, and don't get a lot of the attention, even though they are sort of a mainstay of, of that group for the Democratic Party. Uh, and the other one is suburban women. Um, that's gotten a bit more attention. We especially see that shift happening in the 6th and 7th districts, and that's definitely some of the issue that is going on there. But what I'm interested to see is, again, with Georgia being on this, is that you know there's a lot of very recent races on the Alabama special election a Senate race a couple years ago was also an important one where we know that a lot of the victory was due to the turnout and also who they voted for of African-American Doug, women, Doug and Jones, that should get more surprise, attention. Exactly. upset on a seat that was, had been held by Jeff Sessions is an exactly. interesting example, Tia. Yes. I mean, it's well known that it's hard, probably impossible to become the Democratic nominee for president if you can't get a plurality of support from African-American voters. You might not need a majority, but you need a good chunk of African-American voters to get behind you. And that's particularly in important right now because the field is so crowded, like, you know, to see um, which candidates are black voters at least open to considering. Um, and that'll be a big question about the viability of a candidate, you know, to make it the distance. And again, being here in Atlanta with its sizable black population, its history in the civil rights movement. And then also, it's not just black voters here. You know, Atlanta is super diverse. So we've got a big Latino population as well, a big immigrant community. And um, those also are voting blocks that are important to the Democratic Party. And that, Howard, brings us to the Pete Buttigieg problem <laughs> and how he begins to try to expand his voter base. It's one thing to be 10 points up in Iowa, 10 points up in New Hampshire, which are more than 90 percent white, both states. Uh, it's another thing to try to compete first in South Carolina and then to come to the rest of the South. <clears throat> He's trying to do that. He went to Morehouse Monday afternoon made a proposal about expanding essentially Pell Grants and putting more money into uh, historically black colleges and universities. But this is a tough road, and this is the city where he ought to really be trying to emphasize that he can appeal to African-American voters, and somehow he ought to try doing it tonight. Uh, right on all accounts, I, I'm glad he went to my alma mater at Morehouse College. I Literally, while waiting for the 3 o'clock show... go to Morehouse. He visited. Visited. Morehouse. There you go. He did, did not matriculate. Let me yeah. be clear. Um, there you go. But... I got a call literally while waiting for another event featuring Pete Buttigieg at a barbershop uh, for tomorrow. I think two things 
uh, really must be on his plate if, he, if he's going to be successful. One of them he's shown the ability to do, which is a lot of grassroots activity, building a real active organization, getting people who are willing to make telephone calls, invite people out to stuff. And he's 37 years old. He's got the energy to, you know, to chase voters all around uh, this region. But I think the other thing that we forget is that in late 2015, I'm sorry, in late 2007, you know, Barack Obama, then senator, also was getting beat pretty badly in South Carolina polls. Jesse Jackson uh, and a number of other folks, uh, uh, Representative Clyburn and others were out there stumping hard for Hillary Clinton. And, he, and she had, if you were to believe the polls, a hammerlock until he showed viability by winning Iowa. And also he showed viability by keeping pace and fundraising. So I think he has to uh, continue this momentum if he wants a shot. You know, just from a historical perspective... As long as you're talking about that race, we might want to remind our listeners of a moment in the, in, of a, a Georgia political leader. I know what you're about to say. I'm talking John Lewis. I knew it. I you knew it. tell people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, John Lewis obviously has a storied history with the Clintons, uh, longstanding ties to both Bill and Hillary, and was one of the early prominent elected officials who came out in support of her candidacy and said hey let's shut this thing down uh you know she didn't she wasn't successful before we we want this to work out uh in in her case um or this this, she was obviously the most qualified person stepping onto the stage i shouldn't say shut this thing down all that to say when he changed his position and decided to support barack obama it really was about being on the right side of history that's exactly right that's exactly right um tia let me let me ask you another question about african-american support andre gillespie on this show has frequently and just did it again in the last hour made the point that just because you have a woman candidate doesn't mean that you should expect women are going to follow your campaign, are going to want to uh, vote for you. It's going to be about issues, not gender. So the corollary to that is that we have such a diverse field of presidential candidates this time. You've got a Cory Booker. uh, You've got a Kamala Harris. And yet uh, African-American voters continue to give the white guy, Joe Biden, uh, the lead that he enjoys in so many uh, state polls as well as the national polling across the country. What do you make of that? It, it, and to me, it should dispel the myth for once and for all that black people are just willing to vote for whoever the black candidate is. That's never been the case, but that's always been the myth that's been used to kind of um, criticize when a black candidate does well with black people. And it's just the truth is black people will get behind the candidate they believe in. Now, are they willing to give black candidates a chance by and large? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that vote is automatic. And that's what we're seeing here with Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. Thus far, their campaigns have not caught on with a large chunk of the black vote, mainly because Joe Biden has a lot of the older black voters already sewn up and they're not wavering right now. And quite frankly, a lot of the younger black voters are looking at um, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And so... um, that's not to say that, again, they're not willing. I think the difference is you. Cory Booker is having a harder time connecting. Kamala Harris is having a harder time reconciling her prosecutor past with her presidential aspirations. She's, she's also, I think, we talked about it in the last hour, My and I'd be interested in your telling me where I'm wrong, or maybe I'm right. Um, Harris has 
been looking for the issue on which she can stand her ground. We've got kind of unclear messages about who she is and why she's running. I also think Kamala Harris is kind of, you know, it it, it, it is harder to run when you're a minority. It is harder to run when you're a woman. And why? so she's a minority why? and a woman. Well, you know, you're you're towing the line. You don't want to fulfill the trope. If you're a woman, you don't want to be the angry one. You can't be the shrill one. You can't be too soft, but you can't be too hard. And so when you're black, it's the same thing. You can't talk about too many black issues, but you got to speak to black folks because you want to connect with black folks. You have to be authentic. You don't, you know, and so there are, you know, anytime you're a minority, you know, I'm sure Mayor Pete is you know, walking that same line because he's a gay candidate, yeah. you know. And so um, those are the things that um, probably white voters or male voters um, might not understand. But it's 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 true. It's the part of the calculus. And I think you, you, you can't underestimate or understate the amount of value uh, the familiarity brings to this race, right? Joe Biden's run for president yeah. three times. He yeah. spent eight years in a very popular White House, at least popular to the voters who are going to be show, showing up in Democratic primaries and caucuses yeah. around the country. You know, I've got just for a quick side note, I, I spent an enormous amount of time covering Biden in his first race for president in 1988. And I spent a lot of time with him in southern states, including Alabama, Mississippi. And uh, he was electrifying in those early days and was attracting mixed crowds. And then, of course, it all fell apart for reasons that today would never disqualify a candidate for president. He plagiarized some lines from a speech by a British member of parliament, Neil Kinnock. He padded his uh, uh, credentials at university. Uh, and he's never quite gotten, go I mean, he is still in, in the lead, but we're not seeing the same electrifying Joe Biden today that we I saw way back then. Let's, before we take a break, Amy, one quick note, and then maybe if we have a bigger discussion about this, we can do it after the break. Um, Tia mentioned the import, an important element. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got uh, the first openly gay candidate mm -hmm. for president in, in Mayor Pete. And, and talk about trying to connect with African-American voters. That's already sparked a fascinating debate within the African-American mm -hmm. community about how tolerant some, I guess, I think maybe especially older African-Americans are mm -hmm. of, of homosexuality. Um, there are lots of issues where people are not monolithic. And so we have lots of debates on that. And that certainly is one where things have um, changed over time, but yet also have not changed as quickly as uh, perhaps they have in other areas. And so uh, there is still, I think, uh, sort of maybe more resistance that we see in a number of the minority communities as well as the immigrant communities um, towards uh, same-sex marriage and things like that. And that does – but how much that is playing in this? I mean, I think some of the issues – and it sort of goes back to what Tia mentioned about authenticity – is that authenticity is a very difficult concept for a non-white male candidate. And um, I do think that Mayor Pete is sort of able to get over that hump and in a way that, again, uh, the women and the minority candidates are not, particularly with those that are viewing at home and maybe don't know who any of the candidates are. What do you think, Howard? Oh, Tia, you, you're like, I was itching to in. jump in for okay. two, two quick do. points. I was at Morehouse on Monday. Right. Yes, that was Monday. It's been a long week. <laughs> um, Mayor Pete um, has some work to do in learning how to connect 
with, um, in that particular case, a young African-American crowd. Without regard to his gender It had nothing to do with oh, I'm who sorry, he's married preference. to. I, let right. me quickly say preference is without doubt the wrong word. I know it. I apologize. Yes. Go ahead. Yes, it, it had nothing to do with who he's married to. He just didn't. He had some challenges connecting, and they were left wanting. The other thing is, the I just want to add that the the voters who struggle with electing a gay candidate, by and large, the litmus test for that is how religious they identify as. Now, it's true that black people in general tend to identify as religious more than white people. But again, the litmus test even amongst black people is it's the religious crowd that has yeah. a problem with yeah. Pete Buttigieg okay. being yep. gay, not Fair necessarily enough. a race thing. All right. Um, let's take our final break of the show right now. Um, again, we're live at Tyler Perry Studios getting set for tonight's Democratic presidential debate. Um, we're on the air for our special two-hour edition until 4 o'clock. And I already saw Ricky Bevington has come into the media center and she'll be taking over for us at four o'clock to bring you all things considered also from the tyler perry uh, studios uh we'll be right back hi this is ari shapiro host of all things considered when i'm hosting the show i'm always listening for the thing that's sticky the thing that jumps out of the radio and grabs you the thing that'll make you go home to your spouse or your kid or your friend and say hey you'll never believe what i heard today all Things Considered. Listen every afternoon. Join us for All Things Considered this afternoon from 4 to 7 right here on GPB. You can also listen live online at gpbnews.org. Hi, I'm Grant Blankenship, GPB's reporter based in Macon. There's a lot of difficult news and divisive issues in the world today, and I cover those stories. But I also bring you the voices of people doing creative things to build and improve their communities like a group of women in Macon working on an interfaith cookbook. We all have a lot of emphasis on meeting the needs of the people with whom we come in contact. I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon, bringing you the stories of people working for their communities. Welcome back to the Tyler Perry Studios. This is a live political rewind coming to you from the site of tonight's Democratic debate. Howard, real quickly, uh, let me go to, to a very different aspect of this. During the first hour, we talked about how, in many ways, this once they chose Tyler Perry Studios and we knew it publicly, it was like, of course, it's a no-brainer. One of the great African-American entrepreneurs in American life, the only African-American owner of a, a television and film studio, an extraordinary success story in Atlanta, Georgia. So it makes sense. But let's also mention another thing that I would bet won't be a factor in tonight's debate, but it's something that probably as we talk about this extraordinary facility he has built here, is we still see around Tyler Perry Studios the ongoing problem of trying to develop uh, the rest of the Fort Mac property in such a way that it can revive the economy of an area that really needs it. And that's still a struggle here. Yeah, that was a pretty loaded one for me. So I, full disclosure, What's that loaded, is well, it? for me, I actually did some work for the master developer who was in place for the last two years Steven before. McCall. Exactly. So yeah. I'll say that just full disclosure. That's fine. But I, I definitely think, um, you know, Atlanta is in a lot of ways the heartbeat of the South. And a lot of the challenges that we're grappling with are spiraling out in other communities that we that are 
friends and family and colleagues also hail from and spend plenty of time in. And redeveloping urban communities with an eye toward equity, um, with an eye toward justice and respecting history is something we are still very much grappling with. And this is not the only site, but certainly a, mo a most appropriate one, considering that this issue is front and center. I think just in general, having and putting urban issues front and center in some of these discussions is, is great to do and doesn't always happen. I know we, t we talk oftentimes about global perspectives on some of these political issues. Great to be putting that one front and center. I hope it does. I know you said it probably won't, but I hope it does factor into tonight. All right. Um, a couple, we've just got a couple minutes left. Um, so let me, if I can, for the final couple of minutes, uh, Tia, Amy, and Howard, uh, turn to a couple other aspects of what uh, we're likely to see unfold on the stage tonight. Um, the last time that the Democrats held a presidential debate in Atlanta was 1992, the same year that President Clinton first won the Georgia primary over Bob Kerry, uh, uh, what's his name from Massachusetts, Paul Sangas. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the others who were in that in that uh, cycle. But he, uh, Clinton came down here after having come in second in New Hampshire. Didn't do all that well, but they, they dubbed him the, Come the back comeback kid. kid. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he won Georgia because uh, Governor Miller really mm -hmm. worked hard, moved the primary. And Mayor Jackson also worked. And Mayor yeah. Jackson mm -hmm. as well. Okay, all of that said, he also went on to win Georgia in the general election, and that's the last time a Democrat has done any of that. Um, Stacey Abrams, in her op-ed in the Washington Post leading up to the debate, says the demographics are changing enough that this state really could be democratic. And yet, and yet, we've said that for years now, and it still seems to be a problem. The last gubernatorial election was super duper close. And I like to sort of think of the state, people talk about it being purple. I think it's a red and blue swirl ice cream cone. <laughs> the two sides are very staunch, but they're, they're mixing together. And so we get a lot of that. And in many ways, it's a question of turnout. It is a question of bringing people, I think, into the fold uh, who have not been involved in politics and have been sort of ignored. And so that both is in the urban areas as well as in the rural areas that we're seeing that. Um, it's going back to the suburban areas. And so I think that, you know, Georgia, Georgia has shifted. And again, a lot of what we're seeing across the South is happening here first. We're sort of the microcosm. We're seeing the change even in the metro area that as it changes out to other places, we're seeing... Um, what is going on in the aftermath of Hurricane Michael and how that affected a lot of agriculture in the rural areas. We're seeing how, again, people are shifting into the cities uh, because of the closure of the local hospitals and things like that. And again, this all plays in, I think, to areas that for the Democrats, they're able to um, capitalize on, and it's an important one. Can I can I just challenge sure. the question a little bit? Sure. I, you know, I've been working, toiling, as I might put it, uh, in Democratic politics, sometimes statewide, sometimes congressionals or countywide, uh, before donning the, the, the title of a government affairs professional. And <laughs> I, I, would, I would challenge this notion that Georgia Democrats have been saying we're on the cusp for the last four, six, eight years. I would tell you, and I, I can I can point to specific instances of this happening, that D.C. was telling us that we were on the cusp 
based on polls that have been conducted by D.C. and New York posters. I, I've given dozens of quotes to publications who asked, you know, in, in recent statewide elections where we had brand-name candidates who raised significant sums, is this the time? And I, I would tell you, and I, I think I said to many of them, I didn't think it was a time four years ago. I didn't think it was a time eight years ago. And I, I, here's why, and here's what's different. We Democrats have to win the collar counties, including Gwinnett and Cobb, before we can ever hope to win a 159-county race. And this year, or this election cycle, 2020, gives us our first meaningful shot at that. If you think back to 2016, when uh, the current Republican chairman uh, won his first term on the Cobb County Commission, the Cobb County Democratic Party didn't even field a candidate. There was no Democrat on the general election ballot. We, we are poised for the first time in earnest, not just because of what D.C. is telling us. Tia, the cliche has it that Georgia is already a Democratic state. It's not a question of the demographics. It's a question of voter turnout. If the people who would support Democrats would actually go vote, Democrats would run this state again. I agree that, of course, it's turnout, as Amy mentioned already, but I would also add the candidate matters. Is it someone who can get those independent voters, those voters who really are not, you know, just going to vote for a, a certain party no matter what. They're really open to figuring out what candidate they feel like is best for them. If if the Democrats can nominate some folks, not just in the presidential race, but look at those two Senate races, you know, if those candidates can speak to a, a large swatch of Georgia voters, regardless of party, I do think a Democrat can win. So let's, again, we're running out of time, but let me pick up on what you just said. So we found out that in the 6th Congressional District, a Democrat, Lucy McBath, could win by taking on health care. Yes, guns have always been at the center of who she is as a politician, but the issues that she really promoted in the biggest way was uh, making sure that pre-existing conditions were preserved, ACA was uh, preserved. When you contrast that to what we're going to see tonight, especially from Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all, get rid of your private insurance, I would ask you, you've got about 30 seconds to answer it, is that going to be a losing message for Georgia voters? You know, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, President Obama last Friday was talking with Stacey Abrams in front of a bunch of uh, funders and said he thinks the party can't go too far left. I don't. I, you know, of course, there's always too far left, but what is too far left? I, I think voters, again, they care about health care. So if Medicaid, Medicare for all is pitched in a way that doesn't make them think they're going to lose their insurance yeah. that they currently have is the sticking point. Uh, so it's a test. We're going to watch how all, all this plays out. Um, we are completely out of time. I, I wish we weren't. We've done two hours from the Tyler Perry Studios, and yet there's so much more we could talk about. I'm so glad, Amy Steigerwald, you were here, Howard Franklin. Um, are you guys going to stick around and uh, watch things unfold? Because it's starting to get crowded here in the debate center, Hopefully. and I'm sure you're going to be filing probably 18 stories. We've got a live blog tomorrow. running right now. We're going to be here all night long. Do you have a specific <laughs> assignment that we should watch for in terms of what you're going to get a byline for? To, tune in the live blog and then on um, our Facebook page we'll be having a show before and after the debate. Tia Mitchell. Again, Tia, congratulations on your appointment as a Washington correspondent for the AJC. We look Thank forward you. to uh, having you on Political Rewind many, many times in the Any month. Anytime. That's it for us here at uh, uh, Political Rewind, Ricky Bevington, and All Things Considered. 
will be uh, stepping in in just a minute. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, see you again on Friday. <laughs>